welcome to episode 38 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I am your co-host, Sarah Lucas. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Cohen. Today's topic is good books to read if you're trying to get into polyamory and ethics. This is a question that I've gotten from so many people I can't even make it a person. I can't say this person wrote in and said, this is probably the most common question that I get. Half the time people write a question and then also have a note that asks what right. books they should be reading. This, this, and this. And do you have any good books to recommend? I keep trying to do a literature review of all the polyamory material out there. And I have read, oh my God, almost all of them now. I'm going to be honest. A shockingly large number of them made such a small impression. When I went back and checked if I read them, I had and was like, I don't remember anything from that book. Hmm. So yeah, there are like 200 books on my Google list. Anyway, so I was planning to make this list of all the books and it ends up being such a big project right now. I think having some starting list for people so that they can be doing reading right now is better than waiting till we have an all-time perfect list. So I've asked Mandy and Sarah to bring their list of books that they like and I brought uh, my short list of books that I like and we're going to discuss why we like them, what they cover, why we think you should read them, what they're good for, maybe have some questions like what's the best first book to read? If you were only going to read one starting book to somebody to read as the opening to polyamory, what would it be? We only get to choose one book? So I have three. <laughs> no, no, we're going to do all the books. But I would ask questions like, if someone had to choose a first book, because that's oh. what people will ask, what's the intro book to recommend to someone totally new? What do you say? I have that one. We're going to sort of take turns, and then hopefully after this, each of us will write a paragraph or so explaining why we think you should read each of the books, and then I will post all of those together as a page on our website. Okay. I didn't know there was going to be a written essay. <laughs> I know there's a homework assignment after. Damn it. Uh, homework horrible homework. And a homework assignment after. I think Sarah should go first. Sarah should go first. Yeah. Okay. The book that I recommend is called Opening Up. It's been a while since I've actually read it, and I wish I had a hard copy. I only had the audio version of it. Based on the beginning books that I've read, I've only read a couple. This one is my favorite okay. because it is structured in a very logical way. I've been able to use the book in some of my, my relationships to scan back to it to remember principles that are discussed that were new to me because they're polyamorous, I guess. One chapter that I felt was particularly helpful is the chapter on jealousy. I've read chapters in other books on jealousy and it feels like it's described vaguely in other books but in this one opening up it goes into strategies to cope with jealousy including stories from people that she's interviewed Tristan Taramino is the author of the book and she went around and she interviewed I think about a hundred people to get fodder for the book and to kind of have a good understanding of the lifestyle when she did so she she took down some of the stories and put them in the book to help make the material more tangible and I thought that was helpful but my favorite part about it is that it has a logical strategic approach to the lifestyle rather than just being anecdotal. That's what I got. Can you tell me what you mean by logical strategic approach? Uh, no. <laughs> and what, what makes it logical or strategic? There's going to be a test, Sarah. <laughs> There's going to be a test, yeah. It's, it's been so long since I've had, had um, clear access to this book. Let's see, logical, strategic. I honestly, I could not say. I can't break it down because it's been so long. I don't remember all the details. I have a super awesome intro book as well. Oh, cool. All right, I want to hear a super awesome intro book. So my super awesome intro book is called Relationship Agreements by Eri Cardos, mm. spelled E-R-I. And I don't know that I'm pronouncing that right, to be completely honest. Sure. <laughs> 
It is a really great book that is not actually polyamory focused. Right. As more as it's autonomy focused. And we talk all the time about how everyone should have a relationship agreement. And this is sort of a step-by-step guidebook to how to have that kind of relationship agreement. It is. And it's, it's a workbook. It was on my list too. Oh, it was on your list too? My list is long. Yeah. It's a workbook. It's got great content, a lot of questions to discuss, a lot of questions that make you think about shit that you've not thought about. I read this book. I was probably 14 years into being Polly Mm -hmm. when I read this book. And it made me rethink a lot of stuff. Yeah. It made me much more autonomous in my decisions. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible book. I love the workbook part of it. Yeah, if you're not already really good at making relationship agreements and clear on what that means and actually have a process for it, this is a book you should read. Yeah. That sounds like an amazing book. Even halfway into a relationship, great book. Mm -hmm. Even the most awesome relationship professional person will learn something from this book. Shit, I want that book. That sounds great. I feel like that's something that people that I interact with don't understand a lot is how to make an agreement. Cardos is a great author. The way that they explain things in this book is very accessible to everyone. I actually interviewed Ari Cardos because I wanted them to present at APW one year. Mm -hmm. And I did a whole phone interview with her and two of her partners. Mm. It's not a polyfocused book, but she is, the author is polyamorous. Yeah. That's great. Not only is she an amazing author, but she's really fucking awesome as a person to talk to, too. Relationship agreements is for sure for everyone, but because monogamy is a little more consistent and culture teaches you a lot of the default agreement, you can almost get by with a really dysfunctional monogamous relationship without a relationship agreement. I mean, this isn't new stuff. Like I told you guys, my parents minister in the, what was that, 70s, made them do a relationship agreement before they could get married. Right. So like the idea that you need this to make a relationship work is not new, but it's obviously even more important when you're going off book. Yeah. Yeah. Polyamory, you have to basically make a relationship with agreement with everybody you're dating because there's no standard. And Carter spells it out very well, very detailed. And like I said, it's super, super autonomously based. And that's why I loved the book because it definitely taught me a lot about autonomy. But you think that's a good first book? Like if someone said, I'm interested in non-monogamy or polyamory and don't know anything about it, read this book. That's That would be like your go-to starting book. Yes. Yep. Interesting. For me, Mm -hmm. and in my experience, autonomy is such an important part of my poly. Sure. It taught me that I don't have control over other people. Mm -hmm. And I don't want control over other people. People function so much better when you don't try to control the situation. Mm -hmm. I really, really wish I had read it the first year I was poly. Again, if you aren't really familiar with relationship agreements already, I think you should read that book no matter who you are. But it's an interesting interesting sell to me for the first thing for someone to read because I don't really feel like it explains non-monogamy or polyamory. But it will, I do think, help protect you from getting into a bad relationship that was non-monogamous or polyamorous and make it less likely that you will hurt someone that's poly by being polyamorous or non-monogamous so i might put that with another intro book like read these two together like this one on how to and this one on what you're doing okay i'll give you that one it just sets up the correct mindset Mm -hmm. to me i will give you that 
And to go into poly, you you have to have the correct mindset. Yeah. I'm trying to think of different levels of introductory here. But if someone's just like, non-monogamy exists, and you were like, what? What's that? I wouldn't give them that book first. I'd give them a book to talk about, some kind of book to set up what non-monogamy <laughs> means. Or I would give them Someone I Love is Polyamorous by Chef. Oh, yeah. I think it's like 45 pages. I, I It's right there. I should have grabbed it before I sat down. I definitely purchased like five copies of it when I did. I gave one to my mother so she could carry it around in her purse. Yeah, I think it's great for the, the title of the book. It's like, it's perfect yep. for what it's made for. And let me say that title again. is It's called Someone You Love is Polyamorous and it's by uh, Elizabeth Chef, if I'm not mistaken. That's a good one for when you're someone else is trying to cope with someone they know being poly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like if someone says like, I'm polyamorous and they're like, what's that mean? Like a parent or someone, that's a really great book you can give to them because it's also a reasonable book. We've mentioned before, but we should say more often, telling someone they need to read a book is actually a really huge burden you're putting on them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now you've just told me I got to spend time doing shit and invest myself into something. Yeah. This is a really great book for people that it isn't their lifestyle, where they need to know enough about it to understand your lifestyle without ever having to engage it themselves successfully. Mm-hmm. This is a wonderful book to give to them and go, here you go. This isn't a huge burden. This is a couple hours in the afternoon. Like you can get through this book and it's a good intro starting point. It answers major questions like my parents had, like in the description here. What's going to happen to their kids? Do I have to invite mm-hmm. all of the yeah. partners over for Thanksgiving dinner? The basic questions that... Right people on the outside would have. So this isn't going to be helpful so much if you are polyamorous and looking for more books to read, but it is a great giveaway book to have copies of lying around. It is awesome. Mm -hmm. And it just, it does, it explains things so very simply. It answers the person's questions without getting too personal. Yeah, I I thought, like I heard about this book and was a little skeptical that it could be done the way that she describes and the way that others described it could be done. But I actually think she did a very excellent job of just concisely and perfectly explaining all the little things that everybody asks everybody about about polyamory. And Mm -hmm. Sarah, I know that you're a huge chef fan. I personally think that's chef's best book. I'm not trying to say anything negative about her other writings, but I absolutely think that's the best. Yeah, of her writings, I think that 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 is the best book of hers as well, just because it accomplishes what she set out to do so well. Yeah. I like research papers. Uh, Yes, we know. So I really like some of the other (laughs) books that are research papers. (laughs) I like them both. All right, Michael, it's your turn. What's your intro book? My intro book? Isn't that what we're doing? We're doing intro books first? I think my intro book would have to depend on where the person was coming from. You mean like the East Coast or? No. (laughs) (laughs) So if someone came to me and said, I know that I want to be polyamorous, what should I read as the first thing I should read? Oh, as opposed to like, we're a couple and we want to open our relationship. Right, right. So if a couple came to me and said, I want to open my relationship, I probably would recommend opening up because that's like its whole structure is how to open a relationship. Well, you only get to pick one book in the first round. So which one do you pick? (laughs) I'm running this show. I don't know if you know that. This is Mandy's episode. This is... When I first was learning about non-monogamy and polyamory, I did a big search of the entire field of information that's out there. And the book that I chose to read first after sampling other books was Sex at Dawn. I still haven't read that one. I need to read that one, damn it. I haven't read it either, and I know that you reference that book all the time. A lot of people do. I need it. That is still the book that I would recommend people to read, but it's like a terrible choice. How so? I really wanted to see the science about how evolution built my body for mating. Yeah. 
But you know, you're not the only one that I've heard suggest that book. I don't think I'm the only one, but obviously I don't believe in the naturalistic fallacy. I don't think because something's natural, it's good. Yeah. But I do believe that the natural state tells us what our starting point is. Yes, touche. We can understand television addiction by reference to the natural state because our brains are designed to track movement and prioritize movement. So if you see something move past you, your brain gets pulled to it, which is why if you've ever been at a restaurant with a television show you hate that's on and it's on mute and it's across the room, you still look at that instead of talking to your friends and family who you were there to socialize with, Mm -hmm. which is why I hate televisions and restaurants. (laughs) Because, again, in the native environment, if something comes running past you, like, you need to look at that thing. Right. And so I think a lot of the stuff in the book was helpful to me because it did, it showcased a wide variety of cultures engaged in alternative relationship structures. Mm -hmm. It showed me what evidence we have about the native state, also what evidence we have from our closest living relatives. It actually helped me understand even the declarations of relationship type as they're applied to animals versus humans and how those are different. So every animal just gets one relationship type. They're monogamous, they're polyandrous, they're polygamous, they're whatever that, you know, whatever that is. But humans are all of them, Mm -hmm. which of course tells you something, which is that we're definitely just one of those things. And then we use our big brains to, like we evolved one of those things. And Mm -hmm. then we used our big Mm -hmm. brains to create alternate constructs that we felt worked well for us. (laughs) Yeah. And then once you have that sense, then you go back and look at the biology, he goes back and looks at the evolutionary biology and says, why do we have certain sexual organs that we have? You know, some of the ones that were really interesting being that we have three different types of sperm, that we have a sperm that actually stays sort of near the vaginal opening and attacks and kills other sperm. And we have sperm that... That's the warrior sperm. We, well, you have two types. You have you have guardian, you have the, like, they stay at the entrance and kill things sperm. And you have a sperm that goes ahead and tries to find sperm in the vaginal tract and kill it. And then you have sperm that's oh. actually trying to impregnate the woman. What, what are the first, what is the purpose of the first two? To kill other men's sperm. They're to kill the other sperm. Oh, If humans are, in fact, non-monogamous by nature, as theorized in this book and by all the evidence that we have, then the primary competition for mates doesn't happen at who gets to have sex with the female. It happens in a interior sperm warfare state. Interesting. So if you're mating with three or four males, the male that gets to impregnate you is the one whose sperm is best at murdering other male sperm. Murder sperm! Man, that's fascinating! The theorize that even things like the shape of the human penis is designed as like a basically a plunger to pull Suction. to pull other people's sperm out of you, huh. which is also why like right after you come your head gets softer because then you don't pull your own sperm out. Sarah's mind is blown. I need this book. I need this book in my life. (laughs) So this book then goes more towards the biology and science of polyamory. Right, right. This book is pitched by the writers as a research paper aimed at what's called evolutionary biology, where the idea is that you're supposed to be able to look at the story of evolution and use that to tell how we evolved. So you look at the features that we have in our body and say, okay, that says that we evolve some of these features, which is not as scientific as some other approaches, but it's also one of those things where we don't have, there is no human in the native environment. You can't go study humans. You can't go find pure evolved humans without culture living their natural life cycle to figure out what we're supposed to be like naturally. Right. Mm -hmm. I want to point out that we gave three very different poly intro books Mm -hmm. that come from three very different points of view, very different angles. And I just think that that's neat, the people that they came from. Like... I have to say this. Whenever I recommend Sex at Dawn, I say you have to read Sex at Dusk with it. I really like Sex at Dawn, 
but and it has all of its sources cited, but if you read all of its sources, you will find that it seems to intentionally avoid the evidence it found that was sort of negative for non-monogamy and polyamory. Interesting. Sex at Dusk then goes back and highlights those things? Right, so Sex at Dawn is exactly a research paper that they just published as a book. Interesting. And Sex at Dusk is a critique paper of Sex at Dawn that someone else published as a book. That's amazing. So to be fair, you really should read both. What I don't understand is I don't feel like any of the evidence in Sex at Dusk says that the main point of Sex at Dawn is wrong, but I feel like Sex at Dawn feels less real and feels like it's almost faked because it avoided giving the counter opinion. You know, in any Ah. good argument, if you really want it to be a really good argument, you have to know and embrace the counter opinion as well as your own in order to understand where they're coming from. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like Sex at Dawn did that. So I feel like the combined book of both of them is is great. It felt really... Po- like unilaterally positive is related in Sex at Dawn. And I don't think it deserves that. I think you need the balanced opinion. But I do think that Sex okay. at Dusk is just as bad the other direction. All the things that they accuse Sex of Dawn of doing, I feel like they do the other direction. And they're like, so the only way to read this is it's horrible and it's bad. Mm-hmm. It's just as biased the other direction, which is why I love recommending them together because it's two like diametrically biased opinions about the same material. And I feel like when you read both, you get this greatly balanced opinion that gives you <laughs> both halves of the articles and like a reasonable approach to both. And- All right, so Michael cheated <laughs> and gave <laughs> a twofer. Two for yeah. <laughs> I think you can read Sex at Dawn first as a starting point, but I think I just feel okay. like you ought you owe it to yourself if you've read, especially if you love Sex at Dawn, to go back and read Sex at Dusk, just so you don't also quote things in that study and then have people laugh at you. Sarah, what's your runner-up book? So give us other books, right? Okay. So honestly, when someone you love is polyamorous and opening up are my like favorite books, I feel like the other books that I've read mm-hmm. have been like so I really like the ethical slut. I mean it's not my super favorite, it's pretty anecdotal. Um, which is not really my thing. I really enjoy The Ethical Slut as an additional or secondary book if you want to know how to be polyamorous or non-monogamous. I think it has a lot of good information there. It describes a lot of the different forms of um, ethical non-monogamy. Mm-hmm particularly with the ones that the two authors have practiced. They are um, good friends that have been friends for a long time, and they co-authored the book years and years after they first started living um, non-ethical, I'm sorry, non con- <laughs> non-monogamous <laughs> lifestyles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have um, a lot of information that is really fantastic in here. Um, with step-by-step things and try things and things like that in here. So I really enjoy it. As they've released the, I think, second and now third edition, they do add updates. Correct. So the, oh, that's cool. the third edition is pretty current-ish still, even though the original book is much older. And that is also the book that I often recommend is the sort of basic guide, partly because it does look at lots of different forms of non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the books that are out there are polyamory based. And so mm-hmm. looking at a grouping of non-monogamies as an option for you outside of the polyamory scene, I think is a good place for people who have just heard about it. Because if you've only heard about one type or another, like you only heard of swinging or you only heard of polyamory, then giving you a wider grouping I enjoy. Manny looks very unhappy with this claim. Uh, I don't like the way that you said the polyamory scene. The polyamory scene. You said outside of the polyamory scene, like it's a goth thing or like oh. it's a, Is it like, not? A clo- like a rave <laughs> thing or something. 
It's because it just it makes it sound like it's a a fad or something. You know what I mean? Well, I don't mean it as a fad, but I think that is how we are looked at by a lot of groups, especially outside of our own group. Right? The whole reason that we have trouble getting queer and minority attendance at polyamorous events is the assumption that polyamory is a white scene version of certain subset of non-monogamy. Hmm. So, like, I'm okay with subset. <laughs> I don't know. Scene just sounded very uh, dismissive. I, I didn't, obviously, I did, I'm not intentionally dismissive of polyamory as I have a whole <laughs> podcast named after it. But, <laughs> but I will keep that in mind when talking about it in the future. For, for a few years, when I would talk about what umbrella term you should use, I would say that I like the umbrella term polyamory for non-monogamy generally because it does what it was meant to do, which is it makes it sound more relatable and less hostile. But the whole point of polyamory as described by the people that coined it was that it was supposed to sound like monogamy, polyamory, monogamy. They sound similarly word like, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, the other words available, polygamy, polygyny, mm-hmm. <laughs> polyandry are yeah. not words that are good words. They wanted to come up with a different word and that's why they ended up with polyamory. The thing is that very quickly after that, people uh, in a lot of subgroups of non-monogamy spoke up and sort of rejected the term as an option for them. They felt that the language didn't encapsulate what they were doing. So there's a certain type of classical slinger for whom Mm -hmm. falling in love with anyone else is against the rules and it's a purely sexual exchange and you only have your your one main partner who you're in love with. Mm -hmm. Which is still ethical and Mm non-monogamous. Correct. But not polyamorous. And they felt that that wasn't encapsulated by polyamory. And I had discussed before here and other places how monogamy doesn't actually encapsulate encapsulate what modern monogamists are doing either. And the idea was that it was close enough that it would work as a relatable term. But as these different non-monogamous groups have really solidified strong identities, I think it's shaken out. And I think I can now clearly say that polyamory exclusively now refers to a certain type of non-monogamy where relationships, full emotional relationships are the focus of Mm -hmm. the type of non-monogamy you're engaged in, sexual or not. And that it does not encapsulate a large body of people practicing non-monogamy. So I would absolutely agree. Aromantic polysexuals are not encapsulated and a lot of other groups are not not encapsulated. I would completely agree and the ethical slut actually does include all of that. Right. right. And that's why right. I like the ethical slut as a starting point. Same. Because as much as I like polyamory for me, it's where I ended up after looking at all the different options. And so I like the ethical slut as a starting point for people who aren't sure what kind of non-monogamous structure they should start looking at so they can get some highlights and go look at there. And obviously you're not going to, like, you don't fit completely in any niche. Like, you have to choose your own relationship style in the end. But it it helps you narrow it in. Like, when you get, you can look at the different options and get closer. Right. Yeah, I I like that. If I had somebody who was just like, I don't know if monogamy is for me anymore, I don't know what I want, I would definitely start with the ethical slut for the same reason. It is a very diverse writing for lots of different styles of non-monogamy. Whereas the opening up is something I'd recommend if somebody wants just to do poly or is feeling like poly might be their thing. So it's a great suggestion for sure. All right, Mandy, what's, do you have any other suggestions that we haven't already done? I have two other really, like one of them is one of my absolute favorite books and one of them is becoming one of my absolute favorite books just because it's simply new. It's only been published for 10 days. So I'm not completely through it yet. What I've read is amazing. I've read other people's reviews on it that I absolutely trust, like Tikva's review, um, Tikva Wolf's review on it. But it's called The Polyamory Breakup Book. 
Oh, yes. And it's by Kathy Labriola, Labriola, maybe? She also did the Jealousy Workbook and Love in Abundance. I've heard of both of those. Okay. The full title is called The Polyamory Breakup Book Causes Prevention and Survival. I love it because anybody who has even put their toes into polyamory has broken up. Yep. And <laughs> fairly immediately. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it to me, it is a beginner book mm-hmm. because you're going to run into breakups Sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I, I think that it's right. And it's, I mean, in polyamory, breakups are exponential to yep. monogamy. <laughs> you know, yep. so it sounds like it's a dumb starter book because it's a breakup book. We're not limited to starter books anymore, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. But I mean, I would even, I would consider it a, a starter book because of the content and because of that it outlines what you are going to face, mm-hmm. period, like across the board. Like I said, I'm not completely through with it yet. What I've read of it is amazing. I've gotten really great trusted reviews from friends and uh, leaders in the polyamory community mm-hmm. on it. So that's a great one. And then another one, because I am a mom and I am polyamorous, I suggest Polyglamorous, A Queer Mom's Misadventures and Lessons on Non-Monogamy by Robin Beach. I love Robin. I love Robin. I adore her. She has another book as well, but this one to me is way better. It's her second book, so <laughs> she had, you know, it's it's going to be better. Mm-hmm. But it's all about momming and parenting while being poly. Nice. And that's something I think very close to to all of us and is important. And I think it's another starter book, <laughs> especially when you have kids and you're dipping your toes in the poly pool. I asked what like the first book you would recommend is, but I honestly don't think there are any poly books out there that aren't starter books i would go with that yeah not that i'm against if someone can pull up a book and go this actually does a deep dive but right starting to be polyamorous is difficult Mm -hmm. and all of the books that we have mentioned i know michael's not even done with his list but he's like no i've got seven more (laughs) um (laughs) I just think that so far what we've mentioned are all really great books. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that there's one specific starter book that I would recommend. I would always recommend a cocktail to anybody. And that's what I tried to do. And Mandy said I had to choose one book. You did have to choose one book for the first round, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) I would totally choose a cocktail based on what people were interested in and what they had said to me. Not just one book. I'd be like, you should read this grouping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, tag your it. We haven't listed a book that I wouldn't suggest reading and that I haven't read outside of the book that's 10 days old. I haven't read that book because it's 10 days old. <laughs> um, so That's I, fair. I will add that to my list, but I... You read Robin's book? Uh, the Wait, Polyglamorous? Yeah. Okay, so there were two books I did not read in this list. I did read the others. The <laughs> have, have you read Polyamory in the 21st Century by Deborah Ampel? That was one of my recommendations, actually. Yeah, that was my oh, first yeah, go ahead. one on my list. So Polyamory in the 21st Century is a really good book for slightly more advanced. Like I said, there's no non-beginner books. This is kind of less of a beginner book. It catalogs the recorded evolution of polyamory in America and I think internationally, but mostly in America, I would say. And so it gives sort of a brief history of polyamory as it changes and touches on research and interviews from different attempted non-monogamous groups in the last 50 years. Hmm. It's a, a wonderful book to read to learn about like if you think of polyamory history as being your history as I do for instance to Mm -hmm. read a little bit about that the one caveat I would note is that the book does at times take on a little bit of a spiritual tack 
the author seems to encapsulate spirituality as part of their scholarship, which for me is hard if I don't exactly share your spirituality and I don't tend to share anybody's spirituality. So those mm -hmm. areas I tended to regard a little more critically. But I think as a historical document about polyamory and its movement through our culture in the last 50 years, it's quite interesting. Yeah, the synopsis of this book is interesting for sure. So you guys, that was all your guys' books? Well, I also like stories from the polycule if you just want to just read about other people's experiences. It's just a chef fangirl. Yeah, yeah, she's such a chef. You see me not like, ah. <laughs> Anywho, Stories from the Polycule is a cute book. It's cute, yeah. I think it's weird, though, that you didn't start with Polyamorous Next Door before doing Stories from the Polycule. Oh, well, I thought about that, but um, the Polyamorous Next Door, I really, really like it, but I think it is a little too researchy to be really accessible. Really? I think so. I like the, the format of the Stories of the Polycule is just like, like, it's like chicken soup for the polyamorous soul. I guess I don't know what's accessible. You don't get to gauge accessible. I don't. No, it's true. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I thought it saved me the effort of going out and finding 15 to 20 practicing friends and family and asking them yeah. about their experiences. Because you're going to do that anyway. You're going to get to know people in the community and you're going to ask them about their experiences and it's going to give you some insight to how those people at least have experienced non-monogamy and polyamory. And I feel like the book sort of gives you a head start on that if that was something that you were the kind of person that you'd want to do. And especially if you're the kind of person that likes and understands research language. Mm -hmm. I thought it was very helpful. It was one of the books that I read early on that like it might not say a lot, a lot of stuff, but everything it says in my mind is, I mean, it's just relaying mm -hmm. what people actually said. So it's accurate in the sense that a polyamorous person said, right. this is my experience. These are actual accounts. Yeah. Right. Whereas some of the worst books I've read will say, this is what's ethical or this is what's consensual mm -hmm. and be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and so it doesn't do any of that. So I like, I, I generally prefer things that I know to be accurate. Right. So it might not aim at something that's as useful maybe as some of the other books that we've listed, but it's very accurate in what it is aiming at. And so that is interesting to me and was helpful in my journey getting to understand polyamory. And then stories from the polycule, as I understand it, was just asking people from those groups more stories about themselves, right? Yep. Right. Like, so like I said earlier, it's kind of like chicken soup for the polyamorous soul, if you if you will. Because um, it's just like, it's just like little people or people just sharing their experiences yeah. of poly, their little story if they want to, you know, some people have poems in there even. It's not necessarily the, the sample group from her research though. No. Yeah. I know a lot of people that are sampled in the book, so they were not part of her research. Interesting. My favorite books, and this will surprise no one, do not directly aim at non-monogamy or even non-monogamous ethics because partly I don't feel like those groups have been around long enough or studied long enough to provide super fertile explanations beyond people's own experiences. Fertile explanations. <laughs> one of my favorite books is The Handbook of Jealousy, which is a 500-page mm. compendium of all the research we have on jealousy. That's fantastic. As well as some new research that they did on their own. I adore you, Michael. Mandy's face. Understanding jealousy, I feel like, is one of the most important things to becoming a successful polyamorist, a successful non-monogamist. Agreed. Understanding it, yeah, absolutely. I feel like you have to say the entire title because it just screams Michael. It does, and that, that it's... 500 pages. Handbook of Jealousy, Theory, Research, and Multidisciplinary Approaches. <laughs> yes, there's the entire title, yeah. That's one of the books that I'm most in love with recently. I've read that. I'm going to probably read it again. I have a question, though, about it, because I've not read this book. 
That was a shocking. <laughs> I was trying to say that with a straight face, too. No, I, I mean it does. It sounds like a it sounds like a great book. To be completely honest, it does mm-hmm. sound like a great book. I could not agree with you more that understanding and having a handle on jealousy is essential in mm-hmm. ethical non-monogamy in general. Does this read like a stereo manual, though? I mean, it reads like a research compendium. If you've read a research compendium, then that's what this reads like. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, I wouldn't say it reads like a stereo manual. <laughs> a research compendium. Will you define, like, what, what that what is? What is that word? Com- what does it say it again? Compendium? Compendium. That means grouping of... A compilation of original articles? Yeah, basically. Oh, okay. Never mind. Then I, I, I understand. Well, that. no. So it, so they don't. They're not using original articles. They're, they're saying they've gathered the research and they said, here's what the research says. They're interpreting the group of studies together and different research, and then they'll say like, so because we had these different studies that were sort of vaguely aiming at something, we created a study that's intended to actually aim at at what they accidentally studied. And here's our study, here's the system we used, here's the results we got, and here's what we think that says about the system of jealousy that people have. 500 pages worth interesting. It says it includes 23 original articles mm-hmm. with empirical findings and detailed commentaries by leading experts in the field. Yeah, it's a great book. So that's definitely a more advanced book. Like if you were looking for a more advanced book, if you've done all the poly reading and you want to do more. Can I get cliff notes on this somewhere? <laughs> we did a Jepisode on jealousy and most of that was my cliff notes on this book. Nice. So, so I'm up to date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read this book in preparation for that. I read this book through Michael. This is one of those... <laughs> great happy moments where I was looking for the jealousy workbook because you guys had recommended it and I've actually read that and it was for me kind of I felt like light and I was looking for a copy of it for that episode and I found this instead and was like yes and then I got it and read this 500 page book instead and I was I was much happier I love it. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. So one of the things we try and balance on this show, which I, I do, but I don't think I said explicitly before, is we try and balance theory episodes and application episodes. So an application episode is where we say, here is a thing, here's what we think you should do. So like, for example, this episode, here are a bunch of books. We think you should read each of these books in these circumstances. It's a direct application episode. You can listen to this episode and have follow-up steps. And see, I personally describe each episode as theory and application. I just call theory Michael and Sarah and I application. <laughs> but then, so the episodes like when Manny's like, that's a Michael heavy episode. She also just means that's a theory heavy episode. exactly what I mean. Michael is synonymous with theory. The theory element is understanding maybe why something's happening. And I think that I do translate some of the theory into application. Like I say, so now that we have this theory, here's what we think you should do with that. But the books that I'm going to recommend are primarily going to be theory books where they don't really tell you, here's how to handle jealousy. They say, here's what jealousy is. Here's the evidence on what jealousy is. Mm-hmm. And then you have to take that and say, okay, well, knowing what it is, how do I think that that plays into my view of how I should respond to how I should interact with jealousy? And I think anybody that uh, has listened to any of our podcasts knew exactly what type of books that each of us were going to suggest to our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The other question that I have gotten some people asking is ethics books that they should read. And obviously I've recommended The Ethics of Ambiguity before as a starting point for existentialism. I have not found 
a really good intro existentialist ethics manual that I would recommend to people, unfortunately. What I would much better situated to do is to suggest that people read landmark ethics texts that will help them see existentialism in action. So the two books that I would recommend for that, once you've read The Ethics of Ambiguity, I think everybody should read The Second Sex, which is also by Beauvoir. The Second Sex is large. It is an undertaking. How large? I mean, it depends on what format you're reading it in, but very, like, for me to say a book is large means... I feel like that says something. It's a long book. This book is 832 pages. Oh yeah, okay, that's that's long. Yeah, and and this is really important. I will give you a link for this. This is really important. You must get the newest edition. This is super important. 2011? Is that the newest edition? That's right. But to remind you... The original translation was by somebody who knew nothing about philosophy and had some hilarious unrelated degree like zoology that just happened to know French and English, (laughs) sort of. And they cut out large chunks of Boisvert's philosophy as well as mistranslating huge core elements of existentialism so like they didn't translate being for itself as being for itself which is a term in existentialism because they didn't know that was a term in existentialism because they weren't existentialists the 2011 edition is the first retranslation since then and it was done by two existentialist feminists so that's what you want in your translation of Bavere's work yeah i mean and this is the no this is the number four bestseller in existentialist philosophy just so you know yeah well i can it's an amazing book everyone should read it because because if you are not female identifying it, reading it will give you the best sense I've ever got about what it must feel like to be female identifying and, you know, all the issues therein in the cultural structure. And if you are, when I was reading this book, every day I would think of at least one person I knew who was female identifying and call them and say, hey, I found this issue that you've talked about having. Apparently it's such a big deal. It's in this book. And it's so common. It's in this book. And they felt like they were, like they'd always felt alienated and alone. And then to realize how connected they were with these problems to everyone was a huge deal for them and really helped them feel less emotionally broken up about those things. There's a review on Amazon that says this is the most important and most relevant book that this gentleman has ever read yeah it's pretty much up there i mean i don't i have read a lot of really great books but it's in that like it's in a category where i don't really have a book that i'd say is more important than this book which is fascinating because it was written in 49 interesting so that's awesome like 4980 no 1949 the way you said it i always think of philosophers being like really really (laughs) mandy just fell off her chair and out of the screen i love you sarah You broke me. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked about how it was a reaction to World War II. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I must have missed that part. You can take all of that out. I'm embarrassed. (laughs) You leave all my dumb shit in. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I do. I'm probably going to leave that in, I'm going to be honest. Um... But so that's a really good book to read to sort of watch existentialist ethics in action because nobody, with the exception of the ethics of ambiguity, ever wrote an existentialist book, like none of the major existentialists, that just says, here's what ethics looks like from an existentialist perspective. Partly because existentialism requires you to form your own ethical structure based on a guiding set of how you do that principles based on others respecting other people's autonomy and freedom. So here is Bovera doing that for what she sees as women coming from her perspective and her situatedness yeah 
It's got some great reviews, too. One of the most important texts of all time has some good reviews, I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm just saying it's got a four out of five on Amazon. <laughs> Pretty good for a philosophy book, I have to say. Right. I mean, it's to be fair, I've looked at some philosophy books, and they don't get great reviews like this. And that's I'm actually yeah, yeah. thoroughly impressed with the reviews and the ratings that I'm seeing on Amazon about mm-hmm. it. So I'm not joking when I'm like, it's got great reviews. It really does. I might actually read this book, Michael. I'm just saying. <laughs> if I could only have you read one of the books on this list, it would, that would be the book I would ask you to read. This is it? Yeah. All right. Uh, so I think that's a lot of books. I thought it was great page. that we did have a couple overlaps, or we, we just kind of agreed with each mm-hmm. other on some of sure. them. Sure. But I thought it was great that we brought very different mm-hmm. books yeah. Yeah, into did. the discussion. We were like, here are the books I like. Very yeah. different books, for sure. I just thought I thought it was great. You know, like I said, if anybody had heard any of our podcast, they knew <laughs> what kind of books we were going to bring to the table. Okay, so wait, what's next week? Oh, next week is... Okay, so next episode is we're gonna have my co-founder from Young and Polly Carolinas on. Uh, she's going by I think Kat. Maybe she's using more than her name for that, but we're gonna go with Kat for now. And uh, she and I are going to, among other things, do an update on our rules for leadership and how that's been working out over the last year and a half of our or a year or so in our organization and also give you a sort of overview of how our organization functions, what it looks like, why we decided to make an organization instead of utilizing existing resources and so forth. Which is the answer to a listener question, correct? Yeah, we actually had a listener write in and ask us for an update, but also ask us what our organization, to give them more information about what our organization looks like, and they included three or four specific questions because they want to start an organization and they would like to have some sort of rules for it and they would like to know how that's working out for us. Yep. All right. right, So we'll see everybody next week for that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share, like, and comment. Bye.